Welcome to Practical Christian Living. I believe that God is so sovereign that He gives us free will, and it's real, genuine free will. You can choose. There are all kinds of choices you get to make every day, and there are good things and bad things that happen from our choices. And if we choose from the flesh, from the flesh we will reap corruption. If we choose to the Spirit, from the Spirit we will reap life. They are genuine, real decisions. You and I have a choice. We can choose to follow and live for God, or we can live for ourselves. That decision is for everyone. Whosoever calls upon the name of Jesus shall be saved. That is what the scriptures say. In our last teaching, we studied the warning to not drift away. Today, we are in chapter 3 of Hebrews talking about the freedom God in all His sovereignty gives us to decide who we are going to follow in this life. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, we want to thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit in each of our lives and the Holy Spirit in bringing the scriptures. They are God-breathed. And as we consider this chapter, we pray that we would examine ourselves to make sure that everything is right between you and us and to make sure that our heart has not become hard. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today, we come to the second of six warnings in the book of Hebrews. And these warnings are severe warnings. They cause people to really question whether or not the warnings are for us. In fact, there are people who believe that the book of Hebrews was not written to Christians because the warnings are so severe and that fights against their theology. I would like us to start off by talking a little bit about soteriology. Soteriology is a theological term that means the study of salvation. And it's a whole section. There are people that that's what they do. It's their specialty to study salvation. There are false teachings on how you are saved that would violate good, solid soteriology. For example, there are those churches that believe in baptism regeneration. That is, they believe that when you're baptized, you're born again, where the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible tells us that you believe and are baptized and then you're saved. The Bible does say in a couple places, believe and be baptized and you will be saved. But it also says in some places, believe and you will be saved. But it never says alone, be baptized and you will be saved. It's the believing, and we know this from other passages, it's the believing that causes us to commit our lives to Christ and truly be born again. The cults will tell you that you are, are saved when you join their organization. You join the proper organization and then you're saved. Some believe, some especially really extreme Pentecostal groups believe in the oneness movement, believe that the sign of your salvation is that you're speaking in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not really saved. When the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, do all have gifts of miracles? Do all, and it gives this list. And it's obvious, no, right? We don't all have gifts of miracles. We don't have gifts of healings. The obvious is no there. And then it says, does everybody speak in tongues? The obvious is still no. Not everybody speaks in tongues. So it's bad soteriology when someone begins to say something like you're saved when you speak in tongues. That's the evidence that you've really been saved. There's the Sabbatarians that say you get saved when you join a church that you go to church on Saturday. The going to church on Sunday is taking the mark of the beast. I still haven't quite figured out how that's the case. As far as I know, we don't take a mark here. 
but that's what they believe, that we've taken the mark of the beast, and that's bad soteriology. Today, in the church, there's a battle, and it's a growing battle, over predestination and free will as it relates to soteriology. So as it relates to how someone is saved. Predestination, if you define it by simply God predestining someone who is saved, well, I believe that. I believe the moment that you are born again, God begins to work in your life. And he has predestined those who he foreknew and he begins to make you more like Christ. And that God's got places for you to go. You're, you have free will, I believe. And that God allows you to run into his, his sovereignty at times. Th those who believe in predestination as a form of salvation really believe in what's called determinism. Determinism is that God determines who's going to be saved and God determines everything you're going to do. There are those Christians who believe that you don't have any choices. You don't have any free will. Everything you do, good and bad, has been determined by God for you. And that God is sovereign, the sovereignty of God. And they'll say things like, don't you understand the sovereignty of God? You don't have free will because God's sovereign. No claim that we don't understand it. I'll, I'll go the opposite. I think we do understand it. God's sovereignty simply means God can do anything he wants to do. God is not bound by anything to do what he wants to do. The only way that God is bound is when God bounds himself by his word, which he has done in certain times. So there's things God can't do because he is bound by his word. But just because God is sovereign doesn't mean God always gets everything he wants. The Bible says that God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. If God got everything he wanted, then all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. And that would be done, but it's not done. And so God gives us choices. I believe that God is so sovereign that he gives us free will and it's real, genuine free will. You can choose. There are all kinds of choices you get to make every day. And there are good things and bad things that happen from our choices. And if we choose from the flesh, from the flesh we will reap corruption. If we choose to the spirit, from the spirit we will reap life. They are genuine, real decisions. And so the whole question, as I said, this is really growing. The main people who believe in this kind of determinism are the Presbyterian churches, Dutch Reformed. There were certain extreme Baptist groups that did, but it's beginning to really infiltrate the Southern Baptist Church. The vast majority, by the way, of evangelicals believe in free will, not what they'll call predestination, we'll call determination, or determining whether or not people are saved. So when you're talking about Greg Laurie, you're talking about Charles Swindoll, David Jeremiah, I mean, you could just go down the list of these guys that God has given as gifts to the church today, and they believe in free will for salvation. They don't believe that God has chosen some to be saved and some to be lost, and uh, that's the vast majority, but there is uh, this uber-Calvinistic bent that's making its way into the Southern Baptist churches today. And so you're hearing more and more of it. And I've even heard of a couple Calvary chapels that are beginning to kind of on the edge of that extreme Calvinism. And that's just not what you're going to find generally in Calvary chapels. Calvary chapels can do whatever they want to do as their own church, but you're not going to find that in a lot of Calvary chapels because that has not been our foundation. Our foundation has been people are saved when they receive Christ as their savior. And you have that decision to make and you can make that decision yourself. Now, this chapter, if you wonder, why is he spending all this time talking about determinism and, and free will? Because this chapter deals with it, all right? We're gonna find it right in the middle of the third chapter of the book of Hebrews. In verse one of Hebrews chapter three, 
it says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, that tells us who this is written to. It's written to holy brethren. They're brethren to who's ever writing this, and they are holy. People are going to say this isn't written to Christians. But went right from the very beginning, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. That's two things. They're holy. They're three things. Holy, they're brethren, and they're partakers of the heavenly calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, Messiah, Yeshua, Christ Jesus. He is called here an apostle, which is one that is sent forth, a sent out one is an apostle. He is our high priest. He is the high priest of our confession. That is that we have confessed him in order to be saved, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was also faithful in all his house. So just as the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews compared Jesus to angels and came to the conclusion that Jesus was superior to angels and then a, a warning followed that you would not be of those who would drift away and you would not neglect such a great a salvation, now he's going to compare Jesus to Moses. And you've got to understand that for the, the Jewish mindset, Moses is the greatest of the prophets. Of all the Old Testament prophets, to them, Moses is the guy. Raised in Egypt, a prince of Egypt, trying to deliver God's people, murders a man, gets separated for 40 years, and then gets called by God with a burning bush as Yahweh tells him to go and deliver his people. And they're delivered by a mighty hand of God with 10 plagues. And then Moses leads them out of slavery and out towards the promised land. So that's Moses. To them, it's very powerful. So he says in verse three, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So he says, consider Jesus, who is the apostle and the high priest of our confession and Moses. And this one is considered greater than Moses. He says, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses inasmuch as he built the house and has more honor than the house. He created the Old Testament law. He's making a reference to the house that Moses was a part of and that Jesus is the creator of that house. Now, there might have been a lot of Jews who would argue with him that Moses is the founder of the law. He's the one that brought the law. But here, the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the creator of that house. For every house is built by someone, it says, but he who built all things is God. Notice that this comparison is between Jesus and Moses, that he created the house and now he calls Jesus God. There's no doubt that the writer of the Hebrews saw Jesus as God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all of the house of a servant for a testimony of these things which would be spoken afterwards. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence of the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. He says that we are a part of that house if we hang on to everything firm until the end. Why would he say that? Because he's writing to Jewish Christians that have been fallen under persecution and now they are wanting to leave. They are leaving. And so he writes in general to the Hebrews who have become Christians. We know they're brethren in Christ Jesus because it says so all throughout the whole book. And then he says, you have to hold fast until the end. How do we know that we are genuinely saved? Those who endure to the end will be saved. 
We'll see that a bigger picture of that here, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. In verse 7, he now quotes from the Old Testament. And the writer of the Hebrews does this often. He knows the Old Testament really, really well. He realizes the Hebrews he's writing to know the Old Testament really, really well. And so he backs up everything he says from the Old Testament. He uses some of the words of Jesus in the book, but not many. Most of them, he's using the Old Testament to bring the revelations. So this is Psalms, well, you can look it up, but 95, I think. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now he's quoting the Psalms, which talks about in numbers where they approach the promised land and they get ready to go in and they send in the, the spies from the 12 tribes and they are in there for 40 days and they come back out and only Joshua and Caleb say, let's take the land. Everybody else says, there's giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers in their size. This is a good land. They brought back grapes that were carried between two people. Remember that? It was truly a land flowing with milk and honey. But they say, we will not go in. And Joshua stands up and says to them, and Caleb, God's given us this land. They may be giants, but they're food for us. They're fodder for us. We will destroy them. God will fight for us. He is on our side. By the way, in that passage, it does talk about them as Nephilim. Brings up the term Nephilim, these giants that are in the land. So I'm sure it could be disheartening to be spying out a land and to actually see a giant. If we've got the size right, Goliath was about nine feet tall. Seeing someone of that size is intimidating, especially if you know that you have to go fight them. So this generation is going to die in the wilderness. They're going to wander for 40 years, a year for every day they were in the land looking around and then coming back with their negative report and the people not believing God and the next generation. And they made an accusation against God. They said, you've brought us out here to kill our children in the wilderness. And God said, the very children that you said that I've brought you out here to kill, they are the ones that are going to go into the promised land. And so the next generation... And so for 40 years, God provided for them. They received manna every morning. The Bible says that as they wandered in the wilderness, their sandals didn't wear out, their robes didn't wear out. God was there. God was ever present. But they wandered in the wilderness and they did not enter into the promises that God gave them because of their unbelief. And their hearts became hard. So how were their hearts hard? God said, I'm giving you this land. I'm going to fight for you. Go in and receive it. They didn't believe him. And that was a hard heart. What is a hard heart? It's when you don't believe what God says. If you believe what God says, then you have a soft heart towards God and you go out in faith and you begin to live it and you begin to see it. If you don't believe God, you say, I don't believe that. I don't trust him. Then you have a hard heart. So then we get the warning. The warning that comes from this Psalms that spoke of the rebellion. It says, beware, brethren. Again, who's he talking to? Holy brethren, right? Partakers of, the, partakers of the heavenly calling. 
Now he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Just as they didn't believe that God was going to give them victory in the land so they wouldn't go in. By the way, after God said, you guys are going to wander in the wilderness, I'm not taking you in now. Then they went, we changed our mind, we want to go in. And God said, too late. And God wouldn't let him go in. There's a unbelieving heart that departs from the living God because God gives us direction. God tells us what he wants from us. And when we say, I don't want to do that, I don't want to live that way, that is an evil heart of unbelief. These were, these were the children of Israel. It is possible for us who have been born again, who have been called into the family of God, to develop an evil heart of unbelief where we just don't believe the things that God says and so we don't live the things that are there. What's the evidence that we believe it? Because we live it. I, I think of Abraham and Abraham, you know how the Bible says that it was accredited to Abraham righteousness? It says when he believed God. He told him that Sarah was gonna have a son and that God was gonna bless all nations through that son and through the seed eventually of that son and it says that he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So when we don't believe God, it becomes an evil heart of unbelief and it causes us to not trust in him and to not follow through. So it says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And so now we learn that these, the children of Israel, as they stood on the promised land and looked in, that their hearts were hardened by a deceit of sin. For there, that we know their sin was unbelief. We don't know what other sin it might be. But sin is deceitful. That's really good to know. You, me, were probably deceived by sin. You might say, no, not me. I don't know. I think sin is pretty deceptive. I think it's pretty easy. We grow up in, in a culture we see things differently. If we grew up in a culture at a different time, we would see things differently than we see them now. And it's good for us to evaluate things from a biblical point of view rather than a world point of view in the world that we live in. And it's easy for us to be deceived by sin. Certainly, there could be some deception in our life that doesn't bring about some awful corruption, but sin hardens your heart. And if your heart is hard, then you're hardened against the things that God's asking you to do. So God gives you direction. He lets you know what he wants you to do in the scriptures and your heart's hard and so you don't respond. The opposite of this is found in the book of 1 Samuel when Hannah brings Samuel to the temple and completes her vow that she would give Samuel to the Lord. And so Samuel is there with Eli, the, the priest, and in the middle of the night, Samuel hears his name called. And he gets up and he goes into Eli and says, yeah. And Eli says, I didn't call you. He says, go back to bed. Goes back to bed, hears his name called again. By the time this happens three times, he says to him, God's calling you. So the next time say, speak, your servant is listening. And the Hebrew word for listening is the word for listening, ready to obey. There's different Hebrew words. There's a word for just listening. You're just hearing it. There's also a word like you're giving me a command and I'm ready to obey. So when we say to God, speak to me, Lord, I'm listening. I'm ready to obey. 
then I believe that God will speak to us. God will give us direction. You might say, well, it's been a long time since I've heard from God. It's been a long time since God spoke, has spoken anything to me. Is it possible that you don't have the heart? I'm just asking. You might not be. I'm just asking, is it possible that you have a heart where you haven't listened to God, you haven't obeyed God, and so God has stopped moving within your heart? There's another passage in the Old Testament that says, my people constantly put things in front of them that cause them to sin. He's talking about idols. My people constantly put things in front of them that cause them to sin. Should I allow myself to be heard by them at all? So God is asking us a question. If we are constantly putting things in front of our eyes that cause us to sin, if, we're, if, we're, if there's idolatry that's in our lives, should God allow himself for us to hear him at all? That's the deceitfulness of sin that brings about a hardened heart. We're told here what it is. And if we know that's what it is, then we can back our way out of it. If I tell you, you've got a hard heart, get rid of it, what do you do? What do I do? Okay, I'll give you five points. Five points to, to breaking up fallow ground in a hard heart. But if your heart is hard from the deceitfulness of sin, then you start there. You start by evaluating your life. You start there by evaluating the things that you're doing and whether or not you've been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And your heart becomes tender towards God once again. In verse 14, it goes on, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold from the beginning our confidence steadfast to the end. Now there's that statement again that he made a little bit earlier that I want to expound upon now. We are partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. We have a confidence that we are born again when we receive Jesus as our Savior. He said, as many as receive me, I give them the power to become a child of God to those who believe in my name. The Bible tells us we are transformed. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. So if we have honestly and genuinely come to him and asked him to come into our lives, he will come in and he will transform you. And there will be the fruit, the evidence that you have made a change. If you're filled by the Spirit, you'll have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There will be those fruits in your life that you care about people and love people, and there are works that follow a decision, you, that, a decision that you make for Jesus. Not works that lead into salvation, but works that follow because you've made a genuine commitment to Christ. And so you can be confident. I've asked Jesus into my life. I have, I have sincerely asked him to forgive me. I've sincerely invited him in. Jesus said, if you do that, I will come in. Then you can be confident that you're saved. You can be confident you're born again. Now, if you make it to the end, then you can be confident that you'll make it into heaven. That's what he's saying. He says, for we have become partakers of Christ, hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse -verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. 
For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to dig deeper in your walk with God? Then you are a great fit for REACH College with enrollment opportunities. To attend as a student or an auditor, the courses challenge you to analyze your way of thinking as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Find out more at thereachcollege.org. That is thereachcollege.org.